I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Outsourced, America's manufacturing crisis, built by Grip6. I love quotes. We're going to talk about America, manufacturing, How do we get it back here tonight? But I want to talk about a quote I love first. And oddly, we're going to go overseas for this quote. Isn't that weird for an America First special? Yamamoto, you've heard of him. Yamamoto, the Japanese admiral who was the author of the Pearl Harbor invention. Well, the Pearl Harbor invasion invention. Pearl Harbor invasion. He's the one who came up with this quote. And I think about this quote a lot as I look at America now. You see, when we think back on things like Pearl Harbor and World War II, we're proud, aren't we? We're very proud of what our country was able to do, what our boys in uniform were able to do. But do you want to know why we won World War II? On top of all that bravery, do you want to know why we won World War II? Well, don't take it from me. Take it from Yamamoto. Quote, anyone who has seen the auto factories in Detroit and the oil fields in Texas knows that Japan lacks the national power for a naval race with America. The truth is this. Oh, all that, all that blood and guts out there and the troops, yeah, no question about it. They were the tip of the spear. But when we look back on things like that, we won World War II in the manufacturing plants, churning out tank after tank after tank, bomb after bomb, bullet after bullet, rifle after rifle, over and over and over again, while other modern nations simply had their equipment shatter, their food run out. America's manufacturing giant arm 
awoken and simply turned on the juice and we overpowered everybody on the manufacturing line. Fast forward to where we are now. When's the last time you took a drive or maybe you actually live in it through the Rust Belt? See, I was born there. And there are so many towns across the United States of America that used to be bustling Rust Belt towns, manufacturing towns. One of those towns where everybody is tied in some way to the local steel mill. The kids get new shoes on their feet every single school year because of the steel mill. The wife gets pretty diamond earrings at Christmas time because of the steel mill. And those things are gone. They're gone, and instead we have a drugged out, listless Rust Belt now because the elites in this country sent all of our jobs over to China. And I hate it. I want them back. How do we get them back? We've given China all this power over us. God forbid we have another world war. All those tanks and planes won't be coming out of our factories because the factories are gone. But that aside, how do we get back to having American jobs in this country? Can we? Is it even possible? Well, I promise you we're going to dig into that tonight. It's going to be fun, all right? Now, I do want to make sure that I do this over and over and over and over again. We talk on the show about putting our money where our morals are. I will tell you for the longest time, I did not do this. I didn't care about made in America. I don't care, just give me whatever's cheapest. It's, you've probably done that too. Don't feel bad about it, but I wanna change that. When I talk to you about Grip6, it's more than the quality. I know you already know about the wallets. Everyone knows about the wallets, by the way, this is RFID blocking, meaning those thieves can't do that little scanner thing where they get your credit card just walking up to you. They can do that to you, not to me. My card's locked in. You know, you know about the wallets. You know about the belts. No more little notches in the belt. Fully adjustable. Whatever's perfect for your waist. Best belts ever. You know about the socks. Wool socks that don't itch. They're good in the summer. I live in Houston and I wear wool socks in the summer. That's how good Grip6 socks are. But you know what? Forget about that. Forget about that. Made in America. Grip6 makes it a priority. Made in America. A lot of their stuff is not just made in America, it's made in-house by Americans. That's why I love Grip6. Go support an American company and get the coolest wallet ever. Most comfortable socks ever, best belt. Grip6.com slash Jesse, all right? Grip6.com slash Jesse. We'll be back. You're watching Outsourced, America's manufacturing crisis. Built by Grip6. You're watching Outsourced, America's manufacturing crisis. Built by Grip6. I wrote in 2015 the book, The Fourth Industrial Revolution. And I mentioned 23 or 24 technologies which will change the world. Our life in 10 years from now will be completely different very much affected and who masters those technologies in some way will be the master of the world. Master of the world? Huh. That's, that's an interesting aspiration. Joining me now, Patrick Newman, fellow of the Mises Institute. Okay, Patrick, that doesn't sound like he has America's best interests at heart, but maybe I just heard him wrong. Uh, yeah, it's certainly he's looking for more of a, a globalist perspective where 
United the United States is is kind of subservient to broader, more worldwide interests. Uh, of course, these uh, interests are a, a small elite that's uh, really running the show in various countries. Okay, but he's talking a lot about the fourth industrial revolution and things like that, but th this stuff goes beyond many people. Many people are educated in America's education system, books, but we won't go into the details. Why don't you act like I just got here from another planet and tell me what the first industrial revolution was? Sure, so the first industrial revolution initially started in Great Britain, then it was in the United States. This was really late 1700s, early 1800s, up until about the 1830s, a period of massive change. You saw a movement away from hand processes and craftsmen to interchangeable parts. This was the rise of the steam engine, so actually creating machines to power things, aside from being powered by animals or humans or water. You saw the rise of iron manufacturing and also mass-produced clothes or the textile industries, it was called, uh, basically making clothes through wool and cotton. Uh, you saw the rise of, of, of chemicals being manufactured, particularly sodium carbonate and various other type of uh, chemicals used in glass and uh, uh, soap and so on. So this is a really big change that happened in the early 1800s that really revolutionized uh, human society. Okay, the second one, what was it? Well, the second one took place about 40 years later, really started in the 1850s and then continued throughout the um, uh, the, the rest of the decade. And you, you saw a bit more uh, technology and more advanced manufacturing. We now see the railroads being utilized, right? So the railroads are being developed. This is how people are traveling across the, the continent of the United States, the rise of electrical power. You see petroleum, so people are using oil or kerosene to first to light lamps, then they're using it to power automobiles that become a big thing in the early 1900s, 1920s, thinking Henry Ford um, and, and, and General Motors and so on. Uh, this is really the, the beginning of, of sort of the, the modern um, economic society with mass-produced consumer products, as well as a lot of the things we take for granted, such as toilets, sewage, uh, electricity, as I've mentioned, plumbing, and so on. Okay, I'm sure you guessed where I'm going next. The third, what was it before we get to his desired fourth? Yeah, well, the third industrial revolution, this really picked up after World War II, and this is really the, the digital age, right? So this is the rise of uh, processing machines. So you, you see computer chips, computers. Of course, we think of computers as being the more modern computer we all know, but these really had started off in the um, even in the 70s and 80s. So you saw the rise of, again, uh, computers, video game consoles, digital cameras, uh, and so on. So this is really when more and more things are being processed and sorted through a electronic machine, and we are able to communicate with each other electronically. Of course, the, the major culmination of this at the beginning of the 20th century in the late uh, night, uh, the, the, excuse me, at the beginning of the 21st century was, of course, the Internet. All right. Now, why is the fourth one bad? Because you hear Bond movie villains like Klaus Schwab talk about the fourth one, and you think, man, that, that's got to be terrible, or whatever that guy wants must be bad. Is it bad? 
Well, there's certainly the fourth industrial revolution, like the other industrial revolutions, can provide a, a lot of things to make people better off. But of course, in the wrong hands or with the the, the various government policies, it can make things uh, make uh, the lives of many people worse off. The the big thing we could say here with the industrial revolution, the fourth industrial revolution, is the rise of AI, artificial intelligence, and how artificial intelligence will be used. And of course, wrapped up with this concept of a fourth industrial revolution is how are we going to power things, right? In the first and second and third industrial revolutions, we we powered machines, we powered society through, I guess you could say, um, uh, you know, with various pollutants, the not green technology. So tied in with this fourth industrial revolution is supposed to be this um, this total overhaul of how we power society through various green technologies and so on and how this will interact with artificial intelligence and there's going to be uh, the government's going to have a lot more control over people's lives and being able to monitor what exactly they're doing as well as how to shape them to um, engage in certain activities okay how are we going to power things and i ask this because it seems like the forces around the world, governments around the world, are attempting to force a transition from our power, our current power sources that work, into ones that simply don't provide enough power yet. You can't shut down a coal plant and just put up solar panels. That's not how it works. The solar panels don't produce enough juice. Are we forcing it? Are we going to hurt ourselves by trying to force something? I, I'm of the opinion, and I think the uh, evidence backs this up, that yeah, uh, we by us forcing these types of technologies or these so-called green technologies, solar panel, even a move to more electric cars and not using gasoline and coal and uh, other sorts of quote unquote pollutants. This is going to hurt us. Uh, of course, it will help the companies that are producing those that are getting various subsidies from the government. It, of course, uh, will help uh, other countries that are trying to get a, a, a leg up. And really, the, the, the main result of this is that in order to industrialize other parts of the world uh, with these new technologies and with these new uh, methods of power, we are going to, the United States is going to have to get hurt. So this is, it's, it's going to create a, a lot of upheaval. It's, upheaval. it's going to enrich certain uh, businesses and government officials that are involved in this kind of environmental um, uh, racket, I might say, and it's going to, uh, could, could really hurt human uh, living standards. Can we bring manufacturing back here, Patrick, or is it gone forever? I know we've, we've shipped so much of it overseas. We want to control some of our supply chain, obviously, especially the critical parts. But is it possible, or is that a pipe dream, and we're just a globalist world now, and that's just the way it is? I think it's possible to bring back certain types of manufacturing. We have to think about why did certain manufacturing companies leave the United States. Some of this is just comparative advantage. Certain countries have access to better raw materials, or they have uh, cheaper labor, uh, they have more favorable regulations, etc. Others, uh, other reasons is, is inflicted by uh, the go government policies. So we can have stronger labor standards, OSHA, um, we have stronger environmental standards. I'm thinking of the EPA. For the longest time, we had the highest corporate income tax rate uh, in the world, at least statu the statutory rate, and even with various exemptions and so on, it was still very high. And these discouraged various companies 
from uh, continuing to produce in the United States and encouraged them to move to China, to move to Southeast Asia, uh, you know, other parts of the world and so on. And in those types of industries, we should certainly try to encourage back by getting rid of taxes and regulations that discourage entrepreneurs in America from uh, setting up businesses uh, in the country. Patrick, I appreciate you, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. My buddy Ross Kennedy joins us next. He knows more about supply chains than anybody, so I'm going to ask him some questions about that. Let's get a little bit smarter. You ready for that? Hang on. You're watching Outsourced, America's manufacturing crisis, built by Grip6. You're watching Outsourced, America's manufacturing crisis, built by Grip6. Ten years ago, how many of you knew what the hell a supply chain was? No, I'm serious. You know, everybody made fun of Joe Biden for that, but I remember the beginning of COVID when 15 days to slow the spread was initially proposed. I remember this. Fauci and Trump up there, hey, just 15 days. And I remember sitting there screaming at everybody, uh, do you understand how supply chains work? And everybody told me to shut up that I wanted grandma to die and that we could just pick up the remote control and just unpause the economy after we pause it. I remember this like it was yesterday. So maybe Joe Biden accidentally stumbled into something legitimate. Maybe people really do not understand how supply chains work. So let's bring in the expert, my buddy Ross Kennedy, Fortis analysis and also a supply chain expert and national security expert. Ross, okay, this is going to be the ultimate dumb down for a guy like you. But pretend like I've been educated in America's education system. I therefore know nothing about supply chains in the business world. What's a supply chain? Well, I mean, essentially, it's just uh, all the different uh, things and uh, partners that come together to make another thing. Uh, if you're talking about uh, Legos, you know, the people that would be uh, making the plastic material that the Legos are formed from, the people that are making the machines that uh, actually mold the Legos. Uh, you know, if a physical thing is being made uh, and transported, or in some cases, the software and uh, design elements of a, of a complex thing, that all constitutes a supply chain. So it's just how a thing gets made and moves to another place uh, to be eventually consumed, whether it's by a business or by a consumer. Ross, how does this work when we bring in other countries? And this is the part of it that gets so convoluted, even in my mind, and I understand supply chains because, okay, I've got to make my Legos, but uh, in order to make the plastic or whatever it is to make the Legos, I need this special ingredient from Nepal, but I also need another ingredient from the Philippines. But wait, the government just changed its policies. There's an extra tax on what it's from. You see what I mean? It gets so confusing when you make it international, does it not? Yeah, it does. It's uh, We went international. Globalism became the dominant way. It, it became the default mode uh, for the Harvard MBAs of the world in the 80s and 90s because at the end of the day, it was all about getting to the lowest cost per unit. Now, whatever that widget is that you're making, you want to make it as cheaply as possible, of course, and sell it for as much as you possibly can. And so what you saw happening was, was that uh, manufacturers and suppliers began to co-locate uh, they're manufacturing at the cheapest place they could purchase and then combine and assemble all of the goods. Usually the limiting factor was going to be energy costs, labor costs, or regulations. So in the U.S., as we began to implement uh, more expansive regulatory reform related to uh, the Clean Water Act, Clean Air, 
Uh, as our energy got more expensive, as it became more difficult and expensive to hire people to make chemicals, whatever it may be, places like China stepped up to fill the gap because they were very cheap for labor. They obviously didn't care much about the environment. And then what built up around that was a transportation uh, method or you know, transportation supply chain element, which was how do we get the things we're making over there to here? And then you begin to see the ocean carriers begin to drive their own costs down and the rise of containerization made it so that things could be made and transported to and made in one place and then the finished product transported here to be consumed. So at the end of the day, the generally the more expensive or difficult it is to make a thing, the less likely a uh, given government is going to be, you know, uh, supporting the manufacturing of those things. Globalism when it comes to an economy, is it bad? Is it all bad? Or is some, is some of it good? What's the Ross analysis? The more you can control the things that you desperately need, um, you know, the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, if you will, food, water, energy, shelter, clothing, uh, the better off you are. Um, Globalism gets, I guess, more useful if you're looking at luxury goods or if you're talking about uh, things that are nice to haves, not need to haves. Uh, but in the case of the United States, so many things that we desperately need that, that would be uh, a leash or handcuffs on us or a way to control us if those things were to go missing or were to be cut off, we are far too dependent on global sources for that. Uh, so it's not even that they're made in a neighboring country that's friendly. There are a lot of these things are being made in uh, distant countries that rely on very fragile modes of transportation that can get very expensive in a hurry. And they're being made in countries like China and Russia that are adversarial to U.S. interests. So uh, in that case, globalism is extremely bad. Uh, and then before we even you know, tackle the question of to, to what extent is globalism good, uh, we should probably at least be able to take care of ourselves uh, and then worry about the bigger picture. You mentioned China a couple minutes ago when we were talking about things being made there and how much cheaper labor is. I'm scared to even ask the question, but Ross, how much does slave labor come into, par come into play when we deal with the things that we buy in this country? Far more than we'd like to admit uh, to ourselves, if nothing else. Uh, it is, it's not just in Xinjiang uh, involving the Uyghurs, though, of course, that's the one that that's the issue that's gotten a lot of shine in the last few years. But if you look at China's dominance in the rare earth metals industry, if you look at their dominance in various forms of high-end manufacturing even, if you look at their dominance in textiles, if you take all of these things together, the one common link is, is that many of the large production centers for them come from areas or the supply chains for those industries begin in some of the far-flung distant provinces of China where they do absolutely utilize forced labor. But it's not just in those provinces where manufacturing is a problem. It's the coal that gets dug out of the ground all over the country to power their various factories, endemic with prison labor, forced labor. The other one, anytime you see poverty alleviation programs, where a company or a Chinese province says, oh, we participate in poverty alleviation, that's code for internal migrant trafficking. And what they're doing is they're taking very poor people and conscripting them uh, into incredibly low-paid, slave-like conditions, moving them from one province to another and forcing them to make things, you know, in, in some factory that's a thousand miles from their home and families. Are we... Is this something we need to be more proactive about as a nation, Ross, in all seriousness? I'm not even picking political parties here. Or is this just kind of how it is? The second you start 
taking things from other countries, you're going to have slave labor as part of your economy. Sure it is. And it's not just China. It's in the Congo. You know, very famously, they utilize uh, artisanal mining uh, as a way, if, if you will, but which just essentially means, a, a, you know, a mom with a you know, baby on her back and a pickaxe, you know, smacking at the rock. These types of things are all over the world. It is that way, but it doesn't have to be that way. There are a lot of ways that we can decouple ourselves from these types of situations and we can get more aggressive about pursuing human rights and the bottom line. There doesn't have to be a tension between them. In the U.S., we've used the, you know, utilized UFLPA, the Weaker Forced Labor Prevention Act, and a recent discussion I was having with some high-level Customs and Border Protection officials who uh, is one of the regulating agencies in enforcing that act. There's 78,000 companies right now under active investigation, either Chinese entities or U.S. entities that are suspected of being involved and are having shipments detained and investigated under UFLPA. So we're not doing nothing about it. It's certainly the most aggressive that we've ever been in trying to enforce this, but there's a huge amount of work to be done and we're not seeing the amount of reshoring activity yet that one might suspect they would be if you know they're they're importing from China and getting you know getting their shipments detained uh, for suspension of the act. They're kind of just waiting it out or setting up new companies and trying to bypass or or get the goods in through Canada or Mexico or some other way. Ross, thank you, my brother. Come back soon. Thank you, Jesse. You know, I talk to you a lot about Grip6, and what do I do? What do I do? I pull out the wallets because everyone loves the wallets. This, this, these cool little card holders, and yeah, my cards lock in. You've seen, you've, look, you've seen it a hundred times. I'm not even going to do it. I've talked to you about the belts. I've talked to you about the socks. I've talked to you about the quality of everything. It's not really what appeals the most to me about it. I love that it's all American-made. 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 And I'll tell you, to my shame, I never... I never used to place a big priority in that when I was younger. In fact, when I'd have an old timer say, ah, buy American, sometimes I'd roll my eyes, okay, buddy, I'm gonna go with what's cheaper. And those days are past. We need to make American made, the American worker, American quality, the lack of American slave labor, a priority. I love, I love that about Grip6, I do. To be honest with you, full disclosure, I would probably buy their socks if they weren't even that great because they're made in America. Now, they happen to be the best freaking socks ever, the best belt ever. You already know about the wallet, but I love that. Praise the boys of Grip6 for that, for sure. And I love that they have new stuff coming, too. By the way, if you want a wallet, and you should, or socks or a belt, whatever they make, made in America, that's putting your money where your morals are, Go to grip6.com slash jesse, all right? They give you a special discount out there. Grip6.com slash jesse. We'll be back. You're watching Outsourced, America's manufacturing crisis, built by Grip6. You're watching Outsourced, America's manufacturing crisis, built by Grip6. Where in the hell is it written that says America can't lead the world in manufacturing again? Where is that written? I don't know where it's written, and it's not going to be on my watch. Ladies and gentlemen, we're getting, you see I'm getting criticized internationally for my, my focusing too much in America. The hell with that. Who's saying that? I just, where is it written? Where is it? You know what? Joining me now, John Carney, Breitbart News Finance and Economics Editor. 
John, I hate to interrupt the president when he's having conversations with himself, but what has Joe Biden actually done to bring manufacturing back here? Because I, having grown up in the Midwest, I know what's happened to the Rust Belt. Where did our manufacturing go and what's he done to fix it? Uh, well, first of all, yes, our manufacturing went to China. The whole world sent their manufacturing to China. He hasn't done anything to fix it, except surprisingly, he has not repealed the Trump tariffs. People scream that these were going to destroy the economy, you know, cause inflation, do all this stuff uh, when Trump put them in place. But we now see that that was all Trump derangement syndrome because Biden's kept almost all of the tariffs in place. And, you know, the world keeps going on and people don't even notice it anymore. Okay, did they help? I'd always kept them in place. Did they help? What did they do? Should we be doing more of it? Yeah, they, they helped a little bit, but not very much. We, did, we need to do a lot more. Um, we're, you know, one of the things we found out during the pandemic is how dependent we are on China. When China locked down its manufacturing cities, there was a lot of things we just couldn't get in the United States. Things that even we, that are mostly made in America, often have Chinese components to them. And so when China wasn't shipping us those, that stuff, we couldn't do it. We couldn't make it. Toy companies were, you know, people wanted to buy toys for their kids because their kids' schools were locked down and you couldn't get toys because all the toys came from China. Uh, we, we probably need a lot stronger uh, of a trade barrier to prevent China from, you know, running roughshod over us. And frankly, the uh, trade deficit with China is rising very rapidly. So uh, whatever we've done, it just isn't enough yet. John, beyond tariffs, which I don't even know how I feel about tariffs, it's just that it doesn't ever seem to work out the way it looks like it's going to work out. But beyond those, whatever we feel about them, how do we start making more things here again? And I'm not naive. I know it's not the year 1800. I know that it's a global economy and that's the way it is. But I would like it if a, if a Midwest Rust Belt town could have a couple steel mills and have people earning good wages and have a good life. It's pretty insane. We used to be one of the greatest furniture makers in the world, the United States. Yeah. We, had, we, we produced lots of furniture. I was recently trying to buy a kitchen table and trying to find one made domestically was really difficult. Uh, I could not find furniture made in America. Why is that? How can it make sense that, you know, the my kitchen chairs come from China, like that that seems a long way. Why aren't they coming from Tennessee or Ohio? We used to have a huge furniture uh, manufacturing base here and we don't anymore, we gave it up. Uh, can we get it back? Because I realize it's the labor thing. I'm, I'm not naive. I used to work for my family business. I know when dad looked at the profit loss sheet, it was always the labor market that was never a good mark. And so companies are always trying to reduce that mark, reduce that number. Okay, well, we can't start having slaves here in America. I don't think anybody would prefer that, Lord willing. So China does, we don't. How do we compete with people who have slave labor? Yeah, basically what we need to do is just have a rule that we're not buying stuff from China. I mean, I don't think a numerical tariff is can be high enough to justify buying stuff from countries that have slave labor. So I would say, no, you know, nothing from China. That should be the rule. Uh, it'll take some time to get there though, because over the last 23 years, we've become incredibly dependent on China and we are going, we can rebuild American manufacturing. Heck, I don't, we don't even just have to rebuild American manufacturing. 
if we just took half the jobs we exported to China to enrich China's peasantry and put those in Central America, that would go a long way to solving our border crisis. People are, one of the reasons that our neighbors to the South have remained so poor is that many of the jobs that they, that economists 25 years ago assumed would be migrating into Mexico and from Mexico South from there actually all ended up in China. So yes, American manufacturing has been devastated by China, by China but so has uh, Central and South America. The jobs that would normally, you know, they would be, exporting stuff to us ended up all going all going to China. Okay, that's very interesting to think about. So is that one of the things, because this has always been a frustration for me. I realize we're getting sidetracked. We're supposed to be talking about made in America, but whatever. One of the things that's always frustrated me is the condition of Mexico. It's such a disaster, and it shouldn't be. I just love it. I love the people. I love the vacation there. I love the beer. I love the music. I love the food. They have great natural resources. They have two oceans. I look at Mexico and I think this should be a superpower. And instead, they suck. Why? It, it, I do think China played a big role. When we put in place uh, NAFTA in 1995, this was going to be a huge opportunity for Mexico. Instead, a few years later, we allowed China into the WTO. China took all the jobs. If I were a Mexican, I would be very upset at the way China basically was a predator on the Mexican economy. Jobs that would have been being done in Mexico are now being done in China. Uh, I, I think we can reverse that process, though. I don't think it's too late. You know, just because we're buying so much from China now doesn't mean 10 years from now we have to keep doing that. And in fact, I don't think we can keep doing it. I think the change is inevitable and we need some politicians who will actually start to put policies in place to make this happen. Is there any willpower for that though, John, when it comes to our politicians? Uh, because uh, look, we talk about Trump and I'm grateful that we have a, a more America first GOP, more America first focused GOP right now. They have a long way to go. But it still seems like this has been a both-party thing of just, hey, American manufacturing doesn't matter, screw it. It seems like we're a million miles away from reversing that, but are we closer than I'm selling it? No, we are pretty far away. Uh, you're right that the exporting jobs was popular with both parties. Uh, I think, though, that American that Americans saw but 20 years ago when Pat Buchanan was warning us that this was going to happen. People said, oh, he's fear mongering. You know, the, the jobs aren't really all going to go to China. This, you know, now we can look back and we say, OK, we didn't get the bargain we were sold. We didn't get uh, advanced manufacturing jobs while we sent the, you know, the primitive ones off to foreign land. In fact, we just wiped out entire uh, communities throughout the American Midwest. So we can undo that. We don't have to keep the policies in place that allowed this to happen. It is within our power to change our policies. All right, John, who needs who more? I, I wrestle with this that I should have just called you because you're the smart one. Who needs who more, us or China? And I think about this because, look, we are com competitors, but we somehow need each other. We're competitors, but we're married. There's scary things going on right now in the world. So let's say, God forbid, World War III kicks off here. Who is going to be in more trouble? I think, so China needs our market. Um, they do not have uh, enough of a domestic 
demand economy to support all the jobs that they have in China. So they need us. But I think they could get by for a few years without us. We can't get by without China. We have become dangerously dependent on China. If China decided, you know what, we don't like the way you're treating Russia, we're going to put economic sanctions on you and not sell you anything for two years, we would be in a lot of trouble. We are too dependent on them. We need to wean ourselves from that dependency. And, uh, and frankly, I don't really, you know, we had Trump and he talked a good game, but even his policies didn't go far enough. And uh, so we're, we're going to need something even stronger than that. All right. John Carney, thanks, brother. Come back soon. The Grip Six Boys. We want to talk about American manufacturing. Well, the boys from Grip Six join us next. You're watching Outsourced, America's manufacturing crisis, built by Grip Six. You're watching Outsourced, America's manufacturing crisis, built by Grip Six. I've been obsessed with belts for a long time. I wear a belt every day, and there was like three things that always drove me crazy about belts. You have all these holes, but you only use one of them. This big flap hanging off the front, and it usually sticks out under your shirt. And so I'd search high and low for a belt that would like not do any of those things and I couldn't find it. There's enough things in life that are super complicated and I like to simplify things down. As an engineer, I thought eh, it'd be fun to try to design something myself that would actually be able to do that. So the belt's really cool because uh, it solves those exact three problems. There's no holes, there's no flap, and it's super flat, like low profile. When you put it on, it doesn't stick out onto your shirt, it ends up being super comfortable, and it's just extremely simple. We make our products right here in the USA. The webbing's a military webbing that we have custom made for us. It's rated at like 3,000 pounds. It's got just a ton of strength. The buckle that goes with it is an aerospace grade aluminum, and we actually make them ourselves like in our shop. The strap and the buckle come apart super easy, and you can mix and match anything that you want. So you can make like 45 combinations. We have a ton of confidence in our product because we wear it every day. And we know that people that buy it absolutely love it. And so we're, we're more than happy to say, just give it a shot, because if you don't love it, we'll totally give you a refund, no problem. You know how I knew I was getting old? When I started to prioritize things like my socks and my belt, and I started complaining about my wallet, and that's what I knew. And now when you improve on those things, you find actually the quality of your life is better. My, my Grip 6 belt doesn't pinch me. And the little fat thing I have right here on the hip. Joining me now, BJ Minson, the founder of Grip 6 and David Burton, general counsel, director of marketing at Grip 6. Okay, BJ, the belt itself, let's just set aside everything else. Why did it take so long to find a belt, for me to find a belt that didn't have the holes? It's the whole thing that's the problem for me because they all look gnarled like that. They, every single one of them does, and it drives me absolutely up the wall. This is the only belt I've ever seen like this. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not sure why it took a long time for that belt to come out. I, uh, I hated the belt with holes for a long time, and so I was actually, I used to wear one of David's military belts, and it was much better, but it still was really bulky. So it was kind of like, how could you make a belt that's like the military belt and doesn't have the holes, but isn't so bulky? And that's kind of that's kind of how I came up with the belt. 
David, made in America. Uh, I have, I, I've, in the past, just doing stupid t-shirt ideas or various other dumb things I do on this show, I've, I've looked at things like this, and it's so hard to find good stuff that is made in America. Or if you find it, it's super expensive. Yet, and that's what we've been talking about a lot tonight, yet you were able to do it. You guys were able to do the, put together outstanding products that don't break the bank, made in America. I don't want you to give away all the trade secrets, but how'd you do it? You know, I think uh, uh, when we started GRIP6, we had this idea that um, we needed, we, we didn't want to just be a business that was successful. We wanted to be a business that, that helped change a little bit, uh, you know, for the better in, in America. And so kind of like our, our underlying mission is to affect manufacturing. And the only way we can do that is to make products that are um, that we can do in in scale, we can do mass quantities, and we can do them really high quality. They're innovative, and that they don't break the bank. And so, as we go through things, or we price things out, we we're really we pricing as low as we can, and looking at getting um, as much manufacturing experience as as we can as well. And so, I guess the answer is. Uh, if you have that as an idea going forward, you push to that, you put your energy into it, you can be successful at it. Manufacturing in America. People complain, rightfully so, about it leaving our shores. And it has left our shores, sadly, for decades. Since you are both knee-deep in this, David, I guess I'll stick with you for this one. Can we bring it back? You've been successful. You built this great company. Everyone's thrilled with everything. I get emails every single day. Jesse, the socks. Jesse, my wallet. But... Is this something on a larger scale that we as Americans can do? Can we bring it back? Uh, look, Jesse, we, it's not just that we can do it. We have to do it, right? I mean, manufacturing yeah. is, is the backbone of, of any uh, economy. And especially for America, you know, you're looking at America 50 years ago or so, and we were the, we were the kings of manufacturing in, in the whole world. So a, a lot of our economic success um, was built on the um, on the backbone of manufacturing, and the loss of manufacturing to us has been uh, devastating. And maybe we don't feel it right now, but we'll, you know we will feel it in the future when we've lost the the expertise and you know the knowledge, skills, and abilities that we that we really have to have um, to be a strong economy. So as as uh, manufacturing overseas, we lose control of it, and um, that means to some degree we lose control of the economy. And so. You know, we we believe in a free market and 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 global trade, but um, an understanding of the importance of things being made by us, right, uh, is is critical for Americans to regain and and the ability to do it again is is to have the pride in it ourselves in not making just not just making products, but products that last a really long time that are, you know, like I said before, innovative and um, you know we give everything, for example, Grip Six, a lifetime warranty to to make sure that we can test ourselves and. Uh, making sure that we're following in line with our own values and principles. But um, the key to the future of American manufacturing is, in, in our opinion, we've, we've spent a lot of time thinking and discussing and, and moving in this direction, is modernizing manufacturing and being nimble, being, you know, using automation and robotics and technology um, to be competitive. We can never be competitive with China or India uh, for for. Uh, labor prices, for example, but we can be more than competitive with technology and innovation, which is what our strength is currently in any case. So I think that manufacturing in America, we have to rethink what it looks like. It 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 looks nimble. 
it doesn't look like the old boy system of manufacturing 100 years ago. And, and as we accept that, and it looks really cool, you know, modern American manufacturing is, um, and it looks great. And I can say, you know, working at GRIP6, it's, it's something that is super fulfilling. So as we, as we, you know, rebuild the American kind of manufacturing um, in several industries, not only is it really essential for economy, but it's also rather fulfilling for the people that work in it. You know, we get a lot of technical jobs, uh, technical labor, engineering and machining and um, problem solving skills that will help us for many years to come. BJ, I'm actually glad the founder himself is here because I have to ask you a question. I'm, there's currently a war going on within the Kelly household. You see, everyone knows that this is my Grip6 wallet, that I, I've held it up in front of the camera 8,000 times. This is my Grip6 wallet. I wanted to try one without the loop. I now have this wallet and where my cards, as you can see, currently are. By the way, cards not falling out until I want them to. My youngest son is outraged that I have dropped the American flag and gone with one that did not have the American flag. I explained I wanted one without a loop. I'll give it up to the founder. Your call. So what's your question as far as loop or no loop? Loop or no loop, which wallet? Do I go American flag with the loop or straight black? Um, I love the American flag, obviously, and I'm a loop guy myself. Um, the loop is super nice to to be able to grab something, pull it out, play with it a little bit, use your cards, and you don't risk dropping it because you have such a firm hold on it. So I'm a loop guy myself. I would I would go with the loop. BJ, David, Grip Six. Okay, each of you, thirty seconds. David, we'll start with you. Grip Six. What's the next product you want? Don't tell me you're going to stop at belts, socks, and wallets because you already make the three best things in the country. What's the next one? Give it to me. Uh, we're, I think we're going to jump out and go into something that's not an accessory. So uh, pickleball paddles. Um, we're also working on disc golf discs. And the, the, ah. the call that we, we keep getting is um, for, for wool hoodies and wool sweaters. So that's... My desire is to go in that in that route. Um, we need to build out more machines and get our you know technical expertise and manufacturing expertise in, into that. And I I could say that within a year happening. BJ. Um, yeah, I mean we've talked about it internally. I would just echo what David said. Um, yeah, we've got the pickleball paddles, which we're actually very close to, and will probably happen uh, by this summer. And then. Um, we kind of want to get out of um, like the accessory thing and kind of into to some bigger markets. And obviously that requires bigger manufacturing and that's something that we're always happy to do. So um, yeah, we're always kind of looking for the next thing. You guys have no idea how angry my wife is going to be that you're coming up with hoodies now. Hoodies are my favorite thing in the world. I think I have like 20 of them and now I'm gonna have grip six hoodies on top of it and pretty prolific frisbee golfer we called it false back in the day bj david thank you both so much man i love you guys you know i do thanks for having us thanks jesse of course grip six boys made in america talk about putting your money where your morals are there it is right there all right all right now let me talk about this for just just a brief moment <sighs> made in america matters we try to make sure we will bring you products as often as we can that are made in America. Now, what responsibility do you and I have? 
Let's patronize those businesses, right? Wherever you can find it, patronize those businesses. Next time you need some socks, a bell, wallet, you know where to go. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on, but we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. The warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 